Hello and welcome to the Remnant Rising Podcast. I'm Tyson Thompson, and this podcast is dedicated to the building up of the kingdom of God on the earth and the establishment of Zion. It's dedicated to reaching out to those who are part of the remnant, who have flowing in their veins, either by birthright or adoption, the blood of Christ, who have a desire and understand that the kingdom of God on the earth will come up from underneath, or Zion, and meet Zion coming from above. So this is the second installment of a two-part series. The two-part series is called Zion. Um, We talked in the first podcast about what it means to be of one heart and one mind, at least some of the elements of that. No, I mentioned in previous podcasts that I thought I was going to be doing these podcasts uh, weekly. And as we all know, um, if you're dedicated to hearing the voice of the Lord and following Him, which we'll talk about today, sometimes those best laid plans don't come to fruition. And most of the time, well, all the time, honestly, if we're dedicated to the Lord, it is by design. Um after I did the first installment, um, I took what, like a 10, 12 week hiatus and I haven't done anything, um, with regards to this second installment of this podcast of Zion because, um, the Lord slow rolled me. Um, and I know now why that was, um, I've learned, you know, there's a term that I've learned, uh, it's, it's to flow, um, I think that honestly, flowing in a scriptural sense is a perfect lead-in to what it means to be a holy people, um, which are the two topics we're going to discuss today. First, to be a holy people, um, and then the last element of being Zion people, which is that there's no poor among us. So what do I mean when I say flow? Uh, I love so much the flow of the the most righteous people that we can point out in scripture, how they just flowed with things. In the moment, they inherently seem to just be doing the right things at the right time. Um, I had a basketball coach who used to say, lucky things happen to the right people who are in the right place doing the right things. And then that begs the question, is it really luck? Um, You know, an example of flowing would be Moses, right? Leading the children of Israel out of the promised land. I don't think that Moses uh, had planned or seen that he would part the Red Sea. Maybe he did um, prior to getting there. I genuinely believe, based on the scriptural accounts, that he was uh, somewhat surprised and didn't exactly know in until the moment he was doing it how to solve that problem uh scripturally there are a lot of examples like this of this um joseph sold into egypt seemed to flow with what was happening to him and around him Uh, book of mormon alma and amulek they just flowed with what was going on uh nephi i mean probably one of the most poignant examples because we have so much of the detail of his his life, at least early on, seemed to flow. Um, and I think that you can attribute that to the cause of Zion. Um, and also because Nephi and, and all the others that we can mention, 
truly and genuinely had taken the Holy Spirit as their guide. They could flow in difficult circumstances because they didn't operate in a set of preconceived notions about what could happen and should happen and what their responses would be. They flowed in that environment, um, whatever environment they were in, and they reacted through the spirit to the situation that was presented. You know, when Nephi, we'll talk more about him later, but when Nephi goes into, you know, back to get the plates, they they used reason, you know, and their best intuition to try and secure those plates and it didn't happen. And finally Nephi operates on his own. And when he does, he's successful. Um, and I think that that, I know that that has everything to do with the fact that he had taken the Holy spirit as his guide. And we'll talk more about that at some point. Um, so application for that in our personal lives would be, uh, in our daily lives, when things don't go according to what we planned, uh, we should probably realize that that inherently is a fallen ideology or a fallen celestial paradigm, a thought pattern that needs to be corrected. Um, we can't sit and try to project into the future uh, exactly how we think things are going to work out. I mean, we can. Uh, that's obviously a, a product of the program of agency. However, what happens is, is that you, we've all had this experience where we think things are going to go a certain way and they don't go that way. And what does that lend itself to? Frustration, anger, um, all kinds of, you know, all kinds of lower level emotions, which subsequently, if we were in the spirit, take us right out of the spirit. You transpose that um, against the story of Nephi. Uh, when he, when they went to try to get the plates the first time, they tried to barter for them. They ended up having their treasure stolen. Nephi's brothers beat him, right? Nothing is going according to what somebody would call a smooth plan. When I was in ground combat school, this is one of the first things that they learned, that we learned, is that your battle plan is only as good as the paper it's written on. And you know, it's, it'll go great until you, until you hit first contact, until you first come into contact with the enemy. And then everything you thought you were going to do goes, goes completely sideways. Let me get into a little more of the nuts and bolts of that. So in a combat scenario, you, you pre-plan, um, if let's say, you know, uh, we're in a, we're in a squad that's been assigned in a, you know, in a three truck, convoy we're going to go out to this location we're going to assault this compound um, that's our objective we're going to go take out some bad guys and so we get going in the convoy and we're you know on our way to the you know to the objective and all of a sudden we come under fire and we have to go leave our route um, and get off the road and get off the x so we don't get killed and now we're in a completely different place that wasn't on our original planning. Um, we've got to reroute ourselves um, and go a different direction in order to get where we're going. And that's after we spend a bunch of time um, and energy neutralizing the threat that was shooting at us, if that's what we decide to do. Um, instead of assault through, um, you know, maybe we stop, we fix, we flank and we destroy the enemy that was shooting at us. And then we go on to the original objective of going to this village and assaulting the compound. 
Um, so you have to learn how to flow. In fact, that was uh, when they interviewed German and uh, Japanese military officers after the, um, the Second World War. When they uh, were, were interviewing those officers about the success of the Allies against um, the Germans and the Japanese, they asked, what was the difference maker? And the difference maker was that the American GI is, is basically the response. And, and I don't mean to be, um, you know, exclusive and, uh, you know, have, uh, you know, an American exceptionalist uh, viewpoint. But giving the context, this is history. Um, the American GI was, uh, in the estimation of our enemies in that war, the Germans and the, and the Japanese, was the secret weapon of the Allies. And when they drilled down and asked those, those military leaders from those two countries why they thought the Americans were so successful, why the American GI was the secret weapon of the Allies, uh, the response is actually kind of comical. Uh, the response was, is because they never follow their own doctrine. They, they knew, I mean, the spies were embedded. They knew how we train our troops. They knew, um, they knew all of these things. Um, they knew how we did what we did, um, when it came to tactical operations. And yet they basically were frustrated. The Germans and the Japanese were frustrated with the fact that the American GI wouldn't do, would get pinned down in a certain situation and wouldn't always do the predicted thing. Wouldn't always do a particular maneuver that normally would have been what made sense. And it's because even still in the American military, we teach our combat leaders at the lowest level to think to see the scenario, to understand doctrine and principle of warfare, but to understand that there are certain points where, yeah, you know, seven out of 10 times, this would be the right way to handle this situation. But to think about what they're doing, to slow down and to realize that there are circumstances, three out of 10 maybe, where those circumstances or those um, situations dictate something different and that is the fr that was the frustration for the Japanese and the German opposition to the Allied forces in World War II that American GIs didn't do what was predicted they it was actually frustrating to them because Americans were were unpredictable the American soldier was unpredictable the American marine was unpredictable um, the American airman was unpredictable in the air and, the, and, and even the Navy, um, the ships in, 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 the, in the water were doing things that were, were not part of our doctrine because it, the situation dictated that that happened. And that's what I'm talking about when I'm talking about flowing, uh, is flowing in the spirit and, and knowing that, yes, there's a set of principles that, that generally work a set of guiding laws that are typically what we follow, the right way to do things. But when one sets out to become a holy person, which is our topic today, we leave neutral ground forever. We also leave the ground of the 
the Autobot, the 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 uber religious, um, and that that culture of religiosity in the Church of Jesus Christ Latter Day Saints or the Mormon Church, uh, and in other religions, is a lethal blind spot, because. As human beings, we want everything to be canned. We want everything to be clean. We want everything to be this pretty little checklist. If we always do this, then we will be okay. And I watched combat leaders in my military career struggle. In fact, there were certain people that had no business leading people in combat because they weren't nimble enough in their minds. And it's okay. Not everybody's meant to be a combat leader, right? But they weren't nimble enough in their minds. And I literally had have been in training scenarios and otherwise <clears throat> where, where I've watched these leaders, um, well, those who are trying to lead combat troops freeze because all of a sudden this pretty plan that they laid out on paper wasn't working. And I've watched them actually physically out loud start to recount all the steps to get them to where we were and the reality was, is that in that scenario, in one of these scenarios that I'm thinking of that comes to my mind, while this person's taking a knee going, okay, so we stepped off at 10, 14 hours and we were walking this direction at this pace. I mean, they're actually out loud going through the steps that it took us to get to the point where we were. And we're taking mortar fire. We're on the X, we're gonna get blown up. And they're going through the checklist and the checklist didn't apply at that point. And I literally had to grab this, this individual by the shoulder and shake him and say, none of that matters right now. What matters right now is that we're gonna get blown up if we stay where we are. And that, that is the lethal blind spot of religiosity, of, of religion. And there is a huge, huge, huge foot stomp, foot stomp, foot stomp, huge difference between religion and spirituality. Spirituality is the vehicle or the way in which we commune with God. Religion is in many ways, in my mind, the enemy of man. Religion can teach you a doctrinal set of principles, but religion does not teach you how to operate in the spiritual dimension. That comes from within you. That comes from accepting the guidance of God in your life personally and moving into a higher dimension as, a, as an individual being. So you're probably sitting there going, okay, what does this have to do? Why is Tyson telling me all of this stuff about military tactics, etc.? And what does it have to do with being a holy people? The whole point of me sharing all that is that a holy people flow with a set of circumstances that are happening in front of them and to them. They don't they don't try to be a holy people by going through a checklist because it doesn't work. Where a holy people become holy is when the rubber meets the road. When someone understands a set of fixed godly principles and applies them in real time in a tactical scenario in a real life. Case in point, as already referenced, Nephi. And I've got a whole list of people that we'll go through here. But that to me is what really separates the men from the from the boys and the girls for the women from the girls when it comes to the process of becoming spiritual and then 
that puts you on the pathway to becoming a holy person. And I can promise you and I testify to you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ that being a holy person is nothing, 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 nothing like what is prescribed in many religions in the world. Elder Maxwell talked about furnishing our minds with fixed principles. And yet he also understood the concept of applying those principles in tactical scenarios in our lives so that we can exercise the temperance and all of the elements of godliness in a way that brings us to a state of holiness through the atonement of Jesus Christ. Okay, so let's break down what a holy people means. I looked up and Googled the definition of holy, and I'm going to read these three, these three definitions to you that resonated most with me. Holy, or the word holy means dedicated or consecrated to God. That term consecrated is something we'll come back to today. Exalted or worthy of complete devotion as one perfect in goodness and righteousness. Wow, perfect. Okay, that is also a word we'll come back to here in a second. Devoted entirely to deity or the work of deity. Entirely. So let's come back to the word consecrated. In the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, when you go through the temple, there are five laws in the endowment, right? The endowment is the individual ordinance that will bring you to the place where you have an opportunity to enter holiness. Interestingly enough, if you're not familiar with the LDS endowment, the process begins in what's called the telestial room, and then there's a terrestrial room, and then finally you are presented at a veil, and you converse through the veil with God, and then you enter a place of holiness. And I'm not giving anything away, any secrets of the kingdom. These are all things that you can understand by reading, um, reading LDS literature authorized LDS literature. So there are five laws in, there's three in the telestial room and then two in the terrestrial room that you consecrate yourself to or that you, you swear an oath to with God. The first law is the law of obedience and sacrifice. Okay, a great place to start. If, you've, if you're stuck on the law of obedience, you're going to end up in a place where you're sorely disappointed with what you're receiving from God. So move on from obedience and sacrifice, right, to the law of the gospel, which is taking the good word of God that you've received and sharing it with others. And these laws are all sort of cyclical. Um, you could look at them rather than put them on a timeline or a, a line, put them in a circle. Because every time that you mature to a new point, you come back to obedience and sacrifice, and you kind of start anew. And then you start to teach that higher principle um, and, and you move, you keep moving forward. So again, let's review because I get a little scatterbrained. Obedience and sacrifice is the first two laws. Then the law of the gospel, right? To share with other people what you've learned. Then the law of chastity, which is way, 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 way more than just sexual purity. This law is encompassed of so much more than just sexual purity. It involves, um, you know, overconsumption of food. I mean, there's anything that can be a vice that is that takes you completely away from God would be included in the law of chastity. 
Um, so again, don't get fixated on just the sexual element of the law of chastity. Go dig deeper. Ask Christ. Ask the Lord what that law means. Um, you know, I, I'm just going to pause there for a second and kind of go into this just a little bit more because I feel I need to. I've watched people. I've watched hugely, hugely, hugely overweight, and I know I'm not trying to fat shame anybody, but I've watched overweight people look down their nose at somebody with a drug addiction or look down their nose at somebody with a pornography addiction or a sexual addiction or whatever. And yet these people, you know, even in leaders, even leaders, uh, you know, a grossly obese bishop or stake president or whatever, looking down their nose at somebody who's struggling with one of these other addictions and not seeing within themselves the fact that they're in a huge addiction and that their lack of temperance, just like the lack of temperance of someone else, will keep them out of the kingdom of God as well. So I think it's important that we always remember and apply what the Lord said with regards to judgment. Here is the condescended Son of God on the earth, and when he's being cornered by a bunch of Pharisees and Sadducees, who he called hypocrites and children of the devil, he tells them that he is here on earth to judge no man. Now, obviously, he did follow that up by saying, but if I do judge, my judgment is just. For I do only those things that I have seen the Father do, and I basically get how I should handle and operate in situations from him. And there he is, once again, showing us an example of his holiness. So I know that that was kind of a side note, but holy people are not judgmental people. Okay, so back to the, the term consecrated. The last law that you swear to and oath to in the temple is the law of consecration. Elder Maxwell crushed it when he said, the law of consecration is not a promissory note. So many people inside the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and in other religions and Christian faiths out there are like, oh, well, God's given me all this stuff, and I'm a steward. And when he, through his servants on the earth, asked me to use what I've been blessed with to bless the lives of other people, then I will do it. But that's not what we consecrate or dedicate ourselves to in this holy ceremony of the endowment. When we consecrate ourselves to God, we consecrate all that we possess, our time, talents, energies, and even our very lives, if necessary, to the building up of the kingdom of God on the earth and the establishment of Zion. Really quickly, I'm just going to throw in a little caveat here. Go and research and study the difference between the kingdom of God on the earth and the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Those two terms are distinct and separate and were taught that way by Joseph and the early brethren purposefully. They were taught as two distinct, two very distinct and separate things. The kingdom of God on the earth is not the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The kingdom of God on the earth includes every person, religion, etc. that will inherit the earth during the millennium. So 
Go back and just look at the kingdom of God separate from the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and a lot more things will begin to make sense to you. Sorry, another side note. I'm just giving you all kinds of caveats to study. So, consecration. Being all in. 100%, right? That definition that I read earlier. Dedicated or consecrated to God. Completely dedicated and consecrated to God. Again, it's not a promissory note. It's now. And we'll get more into that consecration of physical things in a few minutes when we get into the part, into the portion of this podcast that talks about um, no poor among us, right? Which is the third element of being a Zion person or Zion people. Okay, so the law of consecration, right, is the last law in the endowment. Then what happens, right? We really, we learn the true order of prayer and then we are presented at the veil. Now the process at the veil, the biggest thing that you are not supposed to give away, which I will never discuss openly, are the signs and tokens. The rest of the endowment um, I tread lightly, but essentially what happens is, is that after you, you swear to the law of consecration and all the other laws, you're, you, you're taught the true order of prayer, and then you are presented at the veil. And you first converse with the Lord through the veil, and then you are you ask to enter His presence. If you're entering the presence of God, I would pretty I'm pretty sure it's pretty safe to say that you are um, at least entering the door of holiness. In fact, the last room in the temple is the celestial room, which is to represent the kingdom of God. Right. So I find it so fascinating that. <clears throat> that the, the, the culture of Mormonism and the culture of, of the church is that we go to the temple, it's something you do once, and then we go back for our dead, and people fail to see that it is for them in this life. That they're supposed to follow the pattern and follow the laws that they covenant to, to the place where it actually brings them into communion with God, with deity, in a relationship, a mutual relationship of complete and total fidelity and dedication. So how does that start, right? It starts with, like I said at the veil, first you converse with God. You start taking seriously your opportunity, as President Nelson is saying, and some of the other brethren are starting to say to hear the voice of the Lord. Now, I will caveat, and you're going you're gonna to start to hear me uh, pick at, and I'm not picking on people, I'm just picking at culturalism, that there is a concerted effort, and I believe it comes from the academic arm of the church and from pharisaical elements that are alive and well in the church, to dumb down and try to manipulate or change or throw people off from the true course that the Lord wants them on. When President Nelson came out before the October General Conference this last year and said, hear him, that wasn't symbolic. That wasn't intended for people to then make videos and say, well, I hear him when I read the scriptures and blah, blah, blah. No, I get that. That is true, right? You can hear the voice of the Lord while you're engaged in reading scriptures. President Nelson is trying to do exactly what Joseph said. When Joseph said, it is his, more than his meat and drink 
to help the saints of God understand the things that he knew. He also said, There is nothing that was made known to him or any of the brethren, but what would be made known to all saints of the last days, so, so soon as they're prepared to receive it. He meant it. Joseph Smith meant that you and I can commune with heaven and God the way he, he did. President Nelson means it. When he actually, when President Nelson says he reveres the prophet Joseph Smith, I know he reveres the prophet Joseph Smith. Why? Because when he teaches, he teaches with power and authority, and President Nelson is echoing the very same things that Joseph Smith said. To me, it is lip service for anyone in the church to stand up and say, I know Joseph Smith was a prophet, when they don't know his history, his personal history, which is very volatile and intense. And if you ever really want to know what the life of a genuine disciple looks like, go back and study the explicit details of his life. We are so blessed in this dispensation to have the detail of Joseph Smith's life because he genuinely did commune with God. And I'll get more into that in a minute in what, what I feel like separated him and made him holy. But the point is, is that he was completely consecrated to God. Whatever God asked him to do, he did it. In fact, the just do it thing that Nike had several years ago, my mind, that actually started with Joseph Smith. Because his, his quote, one of his quotes is tattooable for me someday, uh, says this, this much I've learned when God commands, do it, right? That's Joseph Smith completely and wholly dedicated to the building up of the kingdom of God on the earth and the establishment of Zion. Not sitting around waiting for his leaders to call him in and have him dedicate and consecrate all of his things to the Lord, but taking it upon himself to act for himself. And Joseph was literally impoverished his entire life because anything he received, he let go. Because he always had sufficient for his needs for the most part, and he could see other people around him who needed whatever it was that he had been blessed with. And this drove many, many people around him crazy, especially his accountants, business partners, etc. Because he was always giving things away. He was a conduit for the blessings of God, not just materialistically, but spiritually and mentally and emotionally and, and in all things towards those who are around him. That is a holy person. So now with that law in place and the symbology of the symbolism of the temple endowment in our minds, we can see that we're brought to the veil to learn to converse with the Lord. And then we're brought into his presence. And that is for this life. It is intended. I testify to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of Jesus Christ, as one who knows. It is intended for you to converse with the Lord through the veil and hear him. I said earlier, it is discouraging to me and frustrating to me and to the Lord and to all genuine servants to have people dumb down what President Nelson is saying by saying, well, I hear him when I spend time with my family or I read my scriptures or I check this box or that box. I'm sorry. Hearing the voice of the Lord means literally hearing the voice of the Lord in your mind, in your ears, however you hear him, feel him, actually receiving direct revelation, the word of the Lord for your 
life. And while I'm on this soapbox, I will just take a second. I'm not going to call out leaders by name, but I will tell you that you don't get to claim the title of a special witness of Jesus Christ if you're actively teaching people that they won't see angels in their lives and they shouldn't try to see the Lord, they should just read their scriptures, say their prayers, go to church on Sunday, take the sacrament. If you're teaching that and you're claiming to be in a special witness of Jesus Christ, you're wrong. And I'm not going to name names. You can go find that information on your own. But I have recently heard and have seen that taught over and over and over again. And it is not of the Lord. If you're claiming to be an especial witness of Jesus Christ and you expect people to sustain you as an especial witness of Jesus Christ, you should be teaching people correct principles. And the most correct principle that Joseph ever taught, he hammered home in the King Follett discourse, is to know the very character of God. And this is the crux of the matter, brothers and sisters. Joseph Smith said, If man does not comprehend the character of God, he does not comprehend himself. Let that sink in for a second. If man does not comprehend the character of God, he does not comprehend himself. You have to know the character of God. Joseph Smith also said, Thy mind, O man, if thou wilt commune with God, must reach into the utmost heaven and search into and contemplate the darkest abyss. It is incumbent upon any person who's seeking to be holy to stand in a place with Christ where they can learn to hear his voice for them and then learn to act with exactness on the things that the Lord directs them to do. Regardless of the consequences on earth, regardless of what that looks like to other people. Again, Joseph taught over and over and over again that it is imperative that we know the character of God. What is the character of God? What is God? Christ is so much more than what was presented to me and what I understood about him. And that has everything to do with the fact that there were many willing to teach me the philosophies of men mingled with scripture and very few who taught unadulterated and unfiltered and unsanitized history and doctrine, right? Pure doctrine undefiled. In the study of pure doctrine undefiled and in developing a very personal relationship with Jesus Christ, I have come to know a God who is way more dynamic than the one and two dimensional God that I was presented over my growing up in formative years. I've literally laughed with Christ. I've cried with him. I've felt his indignation and anger. He's felt mine. We've discussed these things. We've broken them down. We've put them back together. He's helped lead me through difficult things. He's helped to teach me by leading me through circumstances that were very similar to experiences I had that were traumatic, and he helped heal me through those, through those experiences. Jesus Christ, the character of Jesus Christ, is so much more dynamic than we ever, ever, ever are taught. And you can't be taught this. It's like you have a really good friend. Picture the most holy person that you can think of, that you're aware of in your personal life. Just think about that person for a minute. 
And when you describe that person to other people, they can kind of get a sense of the type of person that that individual is. But unless they've experienced the love of that person, they can't really understand the character of that person because they haven't experienced it. They can talk, you can talk about the principles of that person or the elements of their personality or the, you know, the fruits of their efforts or whatever. And that will paint a picture of the type of person, a character reference, but the immovable understanding of the character of Christ cannot be understood in any other way than genuinely hearing him. I'm not talking about, again, checking boxes so that you can come into contact with the Spirit. That's only the beginning, right? When you check the boxes, the purpose of checking the boxes in the church is to bring you out of the world and into a place where the Spirit can reside so that you can hear the voice of the Lord. That's the purpose of all the boxes. They are the the read your scripture, say your prayers, all of that stuff, all the obedience laws that were given in the church in Christendom are for a purpose, which is to bring us into contact with the Holy Spirit, right? To get us into a holy state or a state where we've cleared out the focuses and the elements of the celestial world so that we can then activate that spiritual experience of communing with and hearing the voice of the Lord. Okay, so now when you're hearing the voice of the Lord, this is where becoming a holy person really starts to take root. Because then what do you need to do? You need to start to act on the things that the Lord tells you to do. And I love, 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 love so many examples of the scriptures are replete with them. This is a whole nother element, but I love connecting with the spirit of the greats when I read the scriptures. The spirit of Peter, the spirit of Paul, the spirit of the Almas, the younger and the elder, the spirit of Ammon, the spirit of Nephi, the spirit of Joseph in Egypt, the spirit of Joseph Smith, to name some sisters, the spirit of Mary, both Marys, um, Mother Mary as well as Mary Magdalene, and Mary of Bethany. I, I don't know, there's probably some some discussion you could have about whether or not Mary of Bethany is Mary Magdalene, but, but those elements of, of those sisters, um, their spirits are amazing. Martha, you know, her dedication, we, we sometimes get overly judgmental about her, but it was actually good that she was dedicated to serving the Lord. And he had a powerful teaching moment. And that's the only story people remember about Martha, but they don't remember her dedication to the Lord, her focus, her desire to serve him at all costs. Rachel, Joan of Arc, Lydia, Azanath, who's the wife of Joseph of Egypt, Anna, and Esther. I really feel that when new revealed scripture comes forth, that the Lord's going to bring a lot more detailed stories of the powerful prophetesses and sisters. Um, Anna is, is one and Deborah is another that are actually proclaimed as prophetesses in scripture, but all of them are prophetesses. If you understand what Joseph Smith taught about what it, what is required to be a prophet or prophetess, um, you understand that Joseph taught that it, a testimony of Jesus Christ is the spirit of prophecy. If you know Christ, if you know the character of Christ, you know the character of God, and you have a testimony of him, and you're operating in that testimony and using that testimony and voicing that testimony, 
you have the spirit of prophecy. It doesn't matter what church you belong to. You belong to the church of the firstborn at that point, and you are a prophet or prophetess. So take that for what it's worth. Take it to the Lord. Go and study it, right? Moses also said, I would to God that all men would be prophets. It's our job. It is our duty, our solemn obligation to develop a relationship and understand the character of godliness and the character of God so that we can stand as a witness of Jesus Christ in all places. And if we're doing that, you're a prophet or a prophetess. Okay, so Esther, I love her story, right? Here is a woman who is willing to do whatever it takes to be holy. That in itself is something that we need to really break down and analyze better. We don't do a very good job of stopping and pausing and really looking at what's happening in the scriptures. So Esther is a Jewish woman. And the Jews at that time are enslaved to a group of people. And Xerxes is the king. And she is required to marry outside of the faith and in personal revelation and prayer and in communing with the spirit of Esther I understand that she was told by the Lord to break the law Jewish people didn't marry outside of their faith that was a sin it was forbidden and yet she was asked to marry outside of her faith and she went to the Lord and she prayed and she knew that she needed to do that. She had a profound spiritual experience that told her that she needed to marry outside of the faith. She broke the law. She broke the law that Jehovah had established. This is also a pattern. When the Lord, when one takes on the desire to follow the Lord Jesus Christ, you do so even at the cost of breaking the laws that he's established for you in your time and in your era. And if you don't think that's true, let's pause and let's go through the list. Peter and Paul, in their day, as well as all the other apostles, were Jews. And when Christ came along, he told them, the old law is fulfilled. And then he told them, I am the new law. And then he asked them to be complicit with him in breaking that law. And they did, over and over and over again. And Jesus made others complicit with him as he broke that law. When he healed the man at the pool of Siloam, he asked him to take his bed and walk. He said, I'm going to heal you. I want you to be complicit with me in breaking the law. You take your bedding when you're healed and get up and walk. Jesus Christ took this man who'd been crippled his entire life, I assume his entire life, and had him walk and break the Sabbath while carrying his bedding. The blind man was healed on Sunday. Don't be surprised if the Lord asks you to break a current law. People, oh, the Lord wouldn't ask us to do that. He wouldn't? Let me give you the example of Nephi. This is a holy man. He's young at the time, but he is holy. And this act that I'm about to describe in my book is what solidifies him as holy because he put everything else on the line and was wholly dedicated to following the Lord with exactness 
when it came to everything in his life, including, including, including breaking the current set of laws. In Nephi's day in Jerusalem, there was a governing set of laws called the Ten Commandments that had been established from Moses, and they had been lived. They're a pretty good set of commandments. In one day, the Lord asks Nephi to break three of those. When he went back into Jerusalem after taking a beating from his brethren, remember I talked about how he flowed? They lost all of their treasures. His brothers beat him with rods. They see an angel. And then Nephi returns into the, into the city and is dedicated to flowing and following the Lord, even with bruises all over his body, I'm sure, because his brothers were beating him with rods. Okay. He goes into Jerusalem and he finds Laban. Right? He's led by flowing through the Spirit, with the Spirit, and as a man of holiness, he's led to Laban, an incapacitated, drunken man laying in the road. And what does God tell him to do? Hey, Nephi, I know you have these things called the Ten Commandments, one of which is thou shalt not kill. I need you to go ahead and take Laban's sword and cut his head off. And Nephi's like, oh, What? I've never taken the life of a man, Lord. It's forbidden. And the Lord says, it's better that you do this than an entire nation dwindle in unbelief. I'm God. I know you have this set of laws you've been given, but I'm telling you now, I want you to break the law. So Nephi, in his genuine character as a holy man, picks up a sword and cuts the head off of this man. Then, if it wasn't bad enough that he just killed a defenseless man, passed out and incapacitated on the side of the road, the Lord tells him, I want you to lie. Put on his cloak and his clothing, act like you're him, and go to his house and let yourself in, which he did. And when he gets inside, what does the Lord ask him to do next? Steal. The Lord asks, Nephi in one day to break three major laws in Nephi's paradigm. I sat with a very wealthy man recently, and I genuinely believe this man has a good heart. Um, and he was honest. Uh, he said that he didn't think he had the faith to do the things that Nephi did, and that he hoped, he actually hoped that the Lord would never ask him to do those kinds of things. Brothers and sisters, herein is the major travesty of our day. And therein is the difference between being a quote-unquote good member of the church and a box-checking Christian and Latter-day Saint versus being a holy person. Is that at the end of the day, this brother's response was, well, when the prophet says to do it, I'll do it. But the issue is he's looking beyond the mark because the prophet is telling him to do exactly that, to get in connection with Christ to the place where the, the Lord can lead him through whatever he needs to break down paradigm-wise in order to become a holy man and not just a good guy. Elder Maxwell gave a really good talk about that at one point, about how, how we could be impactful in major ways in our lives, or we can simply be remembered pleasantly 
my goal in my life and for all of us should be to remember, be remembered as somebody who was impactful on the eternal destiny of God's children. People who were holy and dedicated to the building of, a, of the kingdom of God on the earth and the establishment of Zion and wholly dedicated to the Lord's work and glory to bring to pass the immortality and eternal life of man. Brothers and sisters, I testify to you in the name of Jesus Christ that the Lord is going to ask you to do things that are against what you currently understand or believe is possible. So be ready. The process of discipleship is full contact and the Lord will bring you into contact with your own fears and your own reservations. And he wants to see a holy people who are willing to act for themselves and not be acted upon, who are willing to follow the Lord at all costs. Go back in your scriptures. I challenge you. I'm going to issue a challenge. I'm going to do this myself. And look for places where the Lord asked people to break the law. He gave the very beginning of the whole human experience with Adam and Eve, he gave two contradictory laws to Adam and Eve, knowing that they would have to choose and that ultimately that they would choose to break a lower law in order to receive greater. They were told not to partake of the fruit. There was no other way out of the garden. There was no other way for them to fill the measure of their creation. And Eve, in her wisdom, and God bless her eternally for it, knew that she had to make a choice. And thereby she kicked off the agency of all of us. Eve was a holy woman. A lot of people, for good or for evil, as was prophesied, can sit around and armchair quarterback the life of Joseph Smith. And people want to compartmentalize portions of his life and say, oh, well, when Joseph was doing this, then he was acting in the inspiration of God. But when he did these things that appear to be immoral, according to them and their paradigms, he wasn't acting in favor with God. No, baloney. Like Joseph admitted to everyone that he was imperfect. But he also said there was no error in the revelation. And the Lord is not going to allow a man who, according to God's standard, is quote-unquote immoral to be the second greatest spirit to ever live on this earth. Either you accept his life in its totality and look past his imperfections and realize that the most important thing that he was asked to do was to reestablish the law of God on the earth. He came here to restore a church that would be a vehicle to reestablish the kingdom of God on the earth. Joseph Smith was a holy man. Regardless of what anyone else's opinion is regarding his morality, his wives, his, his understanding of the law of plural marriage, which is the law of the celestial kingdom and is not Brigham's polygamy, Joseph Smith was a holy man. Again, go and study his life, not the saints' books. I'm sorry to be a spoiler, but the detail of Joseph's life necessary to understand his character are not in the sanitized and pretty versions of the Saints book. While I am relieved that there seems to be an effort to bring the details of Joseph's life to the surface a little more, 
That's all they are, is very, very surface level. If you want to get into the head of Joseph Smith, read his teachings and look at his life in application of those teachings, and you'll begin to understand Joseph's character. And to be completely honest, that's how I became so acquainted with the character of God. Because of the level of detail of Joseph's life, I dedicated, I've dedicated large portions of my life to studying his life and his teachings. Because in my estimation, there is no greater teacher other than Jesus Christ. But because the details of Jesus' life were missing, and at the time when I was progressing spiritually, I needed some more detail to hold on to, I felt drawn to Joseph's life, and I studied his life almost to exhaustion. I've studied his teachings. I've studied his interactions. I've studied the journals of other people who interacted with him. And I know and testify to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of Jesus Christ, that Joseph Smith was a holy man and a prophet of God. He is one of a few select men and women in the history of the world who fully stepped into the being and the mantle of their I am and were holy and were able to stand in holy places and not be moved. You don't get Joseph as the prophet of the restoration without all of Joseph. When you try to separate Joseph's experience, his life, his actions from Joseph and his teachings, and you try to compartmentalize his life and say, well, in this situation, he was acting for God and this he wasn't, you start down a slippery slope of trying to change and sanitize history to, to make doctrine fit your own ideologies, and thereby you dismiss yourself from an opportunity to know the character of God. When you undertake to allow the Lord to strip away paradigms, you will begin on that journey in earnest of understanding things the way God understands them and understanding his laws. And this, honestly, is what the academic arm of the church and many, many, many people in leadership positions in the church, as well as the culture and tradition of the church, have accomplished that's hugely negative and detracting from, from people becoming holy, is that they've tried to take history, tried to take doctrine, and put it in the context of the philosophies of men mingled with scripture, and it just doesn't work. I'm sorry to tell you, you don't get to accept Joseph Smith as a prophet of God and take away the events of his personal life. You don't get to claim to be an especial witness of Jesus Christ while telling people that it's not appropriate for them to pursue piercing the veil. You definitely don't get to take words out of context in the teachings of Joseph Smith and try to make them fit your narrative. That isn't holy. An example of that that I've seen recently is I was reading through the King Follett Discourse on the church website, and Joseph was teaching the character of God by teaching people and helping them understand that God was once like us, so he understands us perfectly, and that we can one day become perfectly like him. And Joseph claimed in that quote, in that part of, of the King Follett discourse, that, that man is co-equal to God, which is blasphemy to a lot of people. Apparently, it's even blasphemous to the academic arm of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Because right next to co-equal, 
they put in parentheses co-eternal. Are you kidding? That's offensive to me, and it should be offensive to any genuine disciple of Jesus Christ. When the prophet was speaking under the mantle of the Spirit in that experience, he didn't need somebody to put co-eternal in parentheses next to co-equal. Everything is co-eternal to God. There isn't, Joseph taught in the King Follett Discourse, that there isn't anything that is matter that isn't co-eternal with God, that it won't continue on forever and ever. So there's no reason to insert co-eternal next to co-equal with God, unless you're attempting to dumb down doctrine and to help people feel less about themselves. To insert co-eternal next to co-equal is silliness. Of course we're co-eternal, of course. That's not what Joseph was teaching. Not in that moment in the King Follett Discourse. He was teaching that we are co-equal. And that, in my mind, is such a powerful element of getting on the path of, of becoming holy, is to understand your relationship to Heavenly Father, Heavenly Mother, Jesus Christ, and the entirety of the God family, how many ever there may be. When Heavenly Father and Heavenly Mother look at me or look at you on this third mud ball from the sun in this solar system, in this part of the galaxy, they don't look at you as some poor wayward soul down here on a sojourn in a small mud hole known as Earth, trying to wind our way, scratch, claw, and climb our way back to being with God and you're such a poor and, and whimpering and pathetic creature. That is not how God views you. It is not how he views me. That is not what Joseph Smith was teaching. He was teaching that God views you as co-equal to him. That in the eternal now of things, you are standing next to Heavenly Mother and next to Heavenly Father and next to Jesus Christ as co-equal, not co-eternal. Of course, we're co-eternal, but we are co-equal with them. We are embryo of them on our sojourn, as discussed in the, in the King Follett Discourse, on the ladder of progression to become like them. If it sounds like I'm being combative towards the academic arm of the church, I am. If it sounds like I'm being combative towards spiritual darkness in high places and leaders who say that they're special witnesses of Jesus Christ and expect people to stand when they come into a room and yet are not acquainted with the character of God, you're right, I am. I'm sorry if that portion of my message turns you off, but I can testify to you in the name of Jesus Christ that I love those people. I genuinely do, but I do not love the ideology that people subscribe to to control the narrative and to dumb down pure doctrine in order to make it fit a narrative that allows for control and allows for the disillusionment and the annulment of the very plan of agency. The scriptures are very clear about men in and women in places of authority who use that authority and power to exercise unrighteous dominion. 
Again, it is not my purpose or intention for this podcast to sit here and tear apart these other men and women, but it is my desire and dedication to fight spiritual darkness wherever it is, even in high places. It is more, as Joseph said, than my meat and my drink to help the saints of God understand the, the visions that, are cap- that they're capable of receiving. Again, the King Follett Discourse, I'm going to do a podcast on the King Follett Discourse at some point, is so elemental. You know, I've had discussions twice this week with, with two different brothers who are dedicated warriors to Christ, and yet we all struggle sometimes to remember what that looks like. Because to be honest, we're all struggling to survive in a celestial world that's falling apart. When I say survive, I mean survive physically. But over and over and over, the teaching of Joseph Smith that most permeates my heart is that teaching. That, that the holy person of God, right, man or woman of God, are acquainted with the character of God. If you've never had the Lord made, make you laugh when you've been having a discussion with him, I submit to you, brothers and sisters, in his name, even Jesus Christ, that you're not communing the way you should or the way you could. Like I said earlier, I've laughed with him, I've cried with him, I've been angry with him. I have begun to remember the intense relationship that I have with him. And I testify to you, brothers and sisters, that that is the path of holiness. I know that you could apply yourself to the tenements of religiosity until the cows come home. You could fast all the time and you could pray all the time, and you could dedicate all of this time to study, and none of it is going to be worth anything unless you apply the principle of coming to know the character of God, of coming to understand that Christ, Heavenly Father, Heavenly Mother are dynamic beings. They are not one-dimensional, and they are going to ask you to do things that are contrary to the paradigms that you've been holding on to about godliness. And the pathway to holiness is to begin to commune with Christ, to hear his voice as the prophet is so capably teaching us, to literally learn to hear his voice in your heart, in your mind, and then to show him your obedience to him in the scriptures, in the temple, in the church organization. We learn the framework of principles necessary to bring us to a place where we can start to commune with God. We can start to have a conversation with him, a dialogue. I talk to the Lord all the time. I hear his voice and he hears mine. And we have conversation as one man speaketh with another. And brothers and sisters, you can have that too. And once we do, once we undertake to follow the Lord that way, to follow the prophet that way, to take seriously the admonitions we've been given by current prophets as well as ancient prophets, to become one with God, to commune with God. Once we undertake that, to hear his voice and begin to act on the things that we're told, you're going to see a huge, huge, huge shift in your own life. All of a sudden, the scriptures will take on new light and everything becomes refreshed or anew made new in Christ. 
you see yourself differently. You'll see others differently. You'll be able to recognize that even pharisaical people who are checking boxes and pulling people away from genuine communion with God are somewhere on the continuum. And that is Joseph Smith discussed in the King Follett Discourse, short of committing the unpardonable sin of denying the Holy Ghost and shedding innocent blood, there is a salvation and an and eventual ex- exaltation of all people who are willing to continue to pursue godliness. And that many of the people that are playing opposition to us or to the church and the kingdom of God on the earth or the establishment of Zion are doing so based on their own ignorance. Not, they're not doing this to be uh, punitive or to, to genuinely fight against the kingdom of God on the earth because they just don't understand. The perfect example of that is Paul, who was Saul. Saul was complicit with the murder of Christians, and yet Saul became Paul and became one of the greatest in the kingdom, right? Alma, the sons of Mosiah, right? Running around tearing down the church were then reestablished into the church, cleansed, and then became the greatest missionary force the world's ever seen. When Paul was dedicated to killing Christians, he thought he was doing the right thing. Based on the law that he was taught with the philosophies of men mingled with scripture, it was the right thing, according to the church of and kingdom of the Jews. But it wasn't the right thing, according to God. Not everything that's done culturally and traditionally in the church is correct. Allow yourself to know the character of God and then show your character and your desire to follow him by doing the things that he wants you to do with exactness. Hear his voice and allow him to teach you what holiness looks like. And you'll start to understand the purposes of even the lesser things in your life, the experiences you've had that are going to help you towards godliness. If you've been a victim, that's an opportunity to to progress towards godliness because Christ was a victim from the standpoint that he allowed himself to be sacrificed as an innocent sacrifice for all of us. If you struggle with anything, all of that is purposeful and formative. Okay, so there's so much more that we could get into on holiness, but I think that that kind of adequately covers down on the basic tenements of what I feel like will get you onto the path, but only the Lord ultimately is going to teach you, you directly, what it looks like to become a holy person. Again, reference the scriptures, the diversity of operations that it took to bring all of these holy people to their place of holiness, right? Saul's life did not look like Nephi's life. And yet both ended up in the same place, right? Both ended up as genuine disciples of Jesus Christ, right? Esther's life did not look like Martha's life, yet both of them became holy, right? My life doesn't look like your life, and yet our trajectory, if we follow Christ with integrity and listen to him and hear his voice and do the things that he's asked us to do, our trajectory will bring us to that place of holiness as well. Okay, shifting gears. So I I referenced these scriptures before, and I'll reference them again. So really quickly, review. we'll review the three tenements of Zion, right? The first being one heart and one mind. 
second, to be a holy people, and third, to eliminate poverty from among us. This is where the rubber meets the road in a lot of ways, and I feel like reading some scriptures about the fruits of being fully consecrated and making sure that there are no poor among us will probably add some incentive maybe and help people to have a different desire, a different outlook as to why the Lord requires this. So let's go through some scriptures. The first one is Doctrine and Covenants 97, 21. And that verse says, Therefore, verily thus saith the Lord, Let Zion rejoice, for this is Zion, the pure in heart. Therefore, let Zion rejoice while the wicked shall mourn. So that verse is talking about becoming Zion by being pure in heart. And again, this is what we've just discussed, that, that holiness, that pure in heart reality. Now, one of the ways that we get to manifest that purity is through consecrating our means and our, our things that we have in this world. That's a way we get to practice godliness. You know, so many of us have been taught that the things that we have are there, you know, the blessings that I enjoy are mine because of all this hard work that I've put in, you know, Regardless of what you may think, if you live in America, you're wealthy. It doesn't matter if you're the poorest among us, you're wealthy. Um, but there's the disparity, right? Like you have people who seem to have the Midas touch and they make money while their eyes are closed. And then there are people who go out and dedicate their lives and work very, very hard every day and, and hardly have a pot to pee in. They hardly have two pennies to rub together. Um, you know, if hard work was what brought wealth, then why isn't everyone in the world wealthy? Because there's a lot of people that are genuine disciples of Jesus Christ that are striving every day who live in, in poverty, right? <clears throat> and yet people who seemingly put less effort in have wealth and abundance just poured out upon them. So you can't say that it's because of discipline and hard work that that all of your blessings have come. In fact, I used to think that way. And then I've become acquainted with, with some men who, who have money and means. And I'm not demonizing them. It's just the reality of their situation. One of these individuals I had an opportunity to spend a bunch of time with and realized that this guy was honestly being blessed by the Lord in a way that he didn't even recognize because he bumbled his way into huge business deals that were just thrown into his lap and he had to put a little effort in and massage them and sort of help them along. But, but he made insane amounts of money and this led him into a place where I feel like he was prideful, um, where he felt like you know, he'd been blessed with all of this as Lord of the Manor because of some, because of his righteousness. And I know that there are many, 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 many people in the church who feel this way. Um, you know, I was talking yesterday with my wife and I said to her, you know, we are talking about the 200th anniversary of the celebration of the restoration, right, of Joseph Smith's first vision. And everybody, everybody talks about it like it's a point to celebrate. And while it is a point to celebrate that Joseph received Heavenly Father and the Lord in his life, in my mind, I think it's a travesty. 
we've had more revealed understanding, more pure doctrine revealed to us in our time than has ever been revealed to any people in the history of mankind. And yet we have yet to build Zion. And that's because of the covetous relationship that people have with the goods and things of this world. Let's not forget the church is under condemnation because we have yet to build Zion. We've had that commandment for 180 years, over 180 years, and we still haven't built a society of Zion. And if you think we're Zion, then I challenge you to explain to me how you can have in the same ward a multimillionaire in America. And in the same ward, you have a family who isn't sure how they're going to get their next meal on their plate. How can we be in a church that claims to understand and live the law of consecration as is espoused in the temple, and yet we have people and sisters in South America who are literally giving their last three pesos for their tithing with no way of knowing where their next meal is going to come from? How is that? We're not Zion. Thus, why Joseph called so many times for the saints to repent. I'm going to give you some personal examples of what the law of consecration has begun to look like for me because I thought I understood it before. I would glibly say, yeah, well, everything I have is, have is really the Lord's and, you know, and I'm just a steward and yada, yada. But until I started to actually live that and have opportunities to apply that, I didn't actually know what that meant. So about three and a half years ago, I started, well, a little bit longer than that, my parents and I consecrated everything to the Lord. And then we were, we were, <clears throat> we were and are consecrated to each other. And that process is a process of maturation. Um, it's still an ongoing process. I mean, it took 300 years, I think it was 300 years, for Enoch to build the build Zion, right? So it takes time. And you have to learn to let go of of ownership, of scarcity, of lack, of fear, of all the lower level emotions, um, and just give everything wholeheartedly to Father and Mother and the Lord. But I've had some experiences. I have had a handful of people in my life, other than my family, who I have begun to, and we've begun, we've begun to experience and experiment upon the word of the law of consecration. Um, I've, I've made, and they've made an, an oath and a covenant with me and to me and I to them through the Lord that we would be consecrated to one another, that we would lift one another's burdens. And brothers and sisters, some of the most holy experiences I've ever had was having sufficient for my needs and having not much extra, but a little bit and taking what little reserve that I have and giving it to another, to a friend and vice versa. I'll give you an example of this. So a consecrated brother and I, um, I had reached out to him several weeks back and said, Hey, I'm kind of in a bind. Um, you know, I'd had some, some deals that I'd been working on some, some jobs and projects for people that were taking longer to get to them than, um, than I had money in the bank. Basically these jobs that I had lined up to do with my to my, my skid steer and my business um, were taking longer. And so 
things had started to stack up and, um, and I had more, more than one person answer the call on, on that. But what one of these brothers, um, is just stepping into this and learning how this principle works. And, and he reached out at me and he said, he's going to, he's going to put some money in my account. And, and I almost told him no, cause at that point we were good. And, um, and the Lord said, no, let him give it. And I was like, okay. And so he did. And then it was the same day later that evening that this, you know, extra amount was in my account. And I had another friend reach out and say, Hey, I'm in a tight spot and I need help. And so all in one day, I got to be the conduit of a blessing from the Lord that wasn't for me. It was for somebody else. And uh, one brother got to learn how to step into this law and to give without any desire for recompense. There's never a, hey, I'm going to borrow this and you can pay me back and you need to pay me back and blah, blah, blah. It's given freely. If that person later decides that through the stewardship of the Lord, if they receive some money that they want to give back, fine. But it's literally learning to to let go of ownership and let go of feeling like we need to to own or control or manipulate or have you know have ownership of things and i can tell you brothers and sisters there is no more humbling experience than having somebody else show up at the right moment and give you what's needed or having the blessed opportunity to show up for them and give what's needed this handful of people that I've had this experience with where we've been able to assist one another or I've been able to receive assistance from them has been one of the most humbling and powerful experiences of my life. And so I would challenge you to look within yourself, look around in, in your stewardship of people around you and make a conscious choice now. I'm sick and tired of hearing people say, well, when the Lord tells me to, I will, right? Well, guess what? The best kingdom you can hope for if your attitude is to be acted upon and not acted and not act for yourself, the best you can hope for is a terrestrial existence. Gods don't wait to be acted upon and told what to do. They do. If you're hoping to qualify for the celestial kingdom, then you need to let go of your ownership of things in a telestial world. And the blessing is, is that the Lord has huge blessings in store for you if you'll do that. Here's another scripture. Doctrine and Covenants 70 verse 14. Nevertheless, brothers and sisters, listen to the words of this. The Lord is very clear. Very clear what it means to be consecrated. It means to be equal in all things, temporally. Equal, which means in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, we should not, if we were Zion, have a woman pay her last three pesos while someone else is sitting on millions or billions of dollars. It's flipping ridiculous. And it needs to be changed. Nevertheless, in your temporal things, you shall be equal, and this not grudgingly. Otherwise, 
the abundance of the manifestations of the Spirit shall be withheld. That is damnation. When the abundance of the manifestations of the Spirit are being withheld because you're holding on to what you have, even if you don't have much, there's somebody in your sphere, in your sphere of influence around you who could be blessed by what you have that is extra, that is above and beyond what you need to have sufficient for your needs. And if you want the abundance of the manifestations of God in your life, let go of the celestial world and stop waiting for him to pop out of heaven and go, you need to give your money or your things to this person. He's not going to do that because he's already told you that. You already covenanted to that when you went through the temple. When you said you would live the law of consecration, it wasn't for someday. It's for now. And he has made you a steward of those things. Be a wise steward. Right? Don't bury your talent. Go out and share it and multiply it. Or just sit there in your abundance and wait for it all to be worthless. And then you're going to have to learn the hard lesson of letting go when the, when the crap hits the fan in the world. And, and the end time tribulations are upon us. I said this to a friend the other day. He's going through a really difficult time financially. He's got a business that has been shut down. He's bleeding every day to the tune of $700 to $1,000 a day because he's waiting for, um, for the situation to change so that his business cannot start to operate again because it's been affected by government shutdown. And I said to him, brother, aren't you glad this is happening now? And he looked at me like I was crazy. And I said, you got to see this for what it is. You're being given an opportunity right now in advance of all the tribulations that we know are coming to let go of ownership and let go of the paradigms that are holding you back from genuine consecration to God. And then he said, oh yeah, you know, that's true. I've always believed that nothing I have is mine. And I'm like, that's true. Right? So your bills and the fact that your business is failing right now, it's the Lord's. And if he wants it to fail, let him let it. But he's teaching you the principles of godliness, of letting go of the desire to control those things in order to step into your higher self. And you have an opportunity to grow spiritually in a way that wouldn't be provided for you in your life in any other way. We just have to learn to let go. Okay, a couple more verses. Three more. Doctrine and Covenants 78, 5-7. That you may be equal in the bonds of heavenly things, yea, and earthly things also. There we go. Equal again. Equal. Okay? It is not equal to have a member of the church who's got no resources, who's struggling intensely to, to survive daily. It's not equal to have that going on and then have the inverse happening where you have people who are sitting in abundance, who are blessed beyond measure, who are living in the lap of luxury, who have every nicety and every creature comfort in the same church where people go through the same temple ceremony and all make the same consecrated oath, right? You have people who are broke broken spiritually, emotionally. This isn't just about money, but spiritually, emotionally, physically, 
broke. Sitting in the same congregation, in the same endowment session with somebody else who's sporting a Rolex and gets out of the temple and walks and gets inside of their $75,000 sports car. And the other person takes off their robes in that environment of being equal and gets brings their modest small bag out of the temple. I've seen people who are poor carry their temple clothes into the temple in a grocery bag because it's the only bag they had to carry them and keep them clean. And they walk out and get on the bus and go home. Think of the irony of that. That's how the Lord operates, right? He, he wants us to stop and think about the irony. You have a group of people who are all in one room together. They're all learning to be consecrated. They're all saying they're consecrated. And you have one who's got a $75,000 car in the parking lot and another guy who's carrying his temple clothes out of the temple in a plastic bag and gets on the bus. Now, I want you to understand that I'm not shaming the guy with a $75,000 sports car, right? It's You can't paint with a broad brush stroke, right? It's it's the law of the one, right? It is the, That is the law. But the reality is, is that we as a people, as a church, are under condemnation from God. We're under condemnation from God because we have been guilty for far too long of not upholding the law of the celestial kingdom. And the Lord is ready for us to figure this out, to get after it, to do that. He's not going to force us. He's not going to make us do that. He's He wants us to take what he's already given in law and from the voice, from his voice and the voice of his servants and act upon it until we come to that place of holiness and being equal. So, now, sorry, I got a little carried away, but let's go back to those verses really quick because I didn't finish them. Um, sorry, not sorry, I should say. All right, so these verses, Doctrine and Covenants 78, 5 through 7, that you may be equal in the bonds of heavenly things, yea, and earthly things also for the obtaining of heavenly things. For if you're not equal in earthly things, you cannot be equal in obtaining heavenly things. For if you will... If you will that I give unto you a place in the celestial world, you must prepare yourselves by doing things, doing the things I have commanded you and required of you. He's commanded us and required us to be equal in all things. If you depart this life holding on to your millions and you haven't sold them and followed Christ, literally, uh, then you have failed indeed. You will fail in finding your way to the celestial kingdom. You'll re- you'll have an opportunity to repent because again, Joseph was very clear about that in the King Follett discourse. But so much the better, right? We're told to do things in this world that prepare us for the world in the next, for the next world, and that we do by letting go of the things of this world before we've parted this world. And the Lord is clear. He's not going to give us the manifestations of the highest celestial blessings that we can receive if we're still holding on to all of these things. And there are some people that are waking up to this. What's interesting to me, though, so far, so far in my consecrated experience, what I have seen are men who are of, of little means or 
you know, modest means who are assisting one another. I haven't yet to see a very wealthy man, not to say they don't exist, but a very wealthy man who completely consecrates his all to the Lord, doesn't wait around to be commanded to do it, but gives liberally to others, right? We're told the Lord gives liberally and he upbraideth not, right? What does that mean? It means he's always giving. We talked about Joseph Smith today. Like I said, Joseph gave and gave and gave. He was always impoverished. He didn't live in the lap of luxury. He he had things, right? And he had sufficient for his needs. And there were times of, and seasons of wealth, right? Where he, where he, you know, was able to take care of his family a little better. Um, but Emma was constantly perturbed with him because he would give away what he had been given. He would pass it on to somebody who needed it worse than he did. And it was always about the kingdom of God. And what he understood was that, that, the mansion prepared for him in the kingdom of our father can't even the world this world's wealth couldn't buy that mansion right and that is it is a place where we get to go dwell with god and in a large way we can dwell there now at least in spirit and that has been my experience by having this group of brothers and sisters that have consecrated themselves to to me and me to them, you know, my family to them and and their family to ours, we have we have come to a place where oh, we're coming to a place where we're understanding what that law looks like, where somebody can give somebody five thousand dollars, which is a lot of money to people of our stature, right? I'm not a I'm not a rich man, right? But I've witnessed that, I've received it, I've seen it. You know, for us, what are large sums of money to a brother or sister in need with zero desire for recompense? It's not a loan, right? The Lord didn't loan us the atonement, right? He gave it to us to leverage and use in our lives to help us, to better us, to bring us to his presence. He didn't loan it to us. A, a, 3.9% APR, right? Like he gave it freely to us, his life. So the law of consecration is the same. We give those things without desire for recompense, without desiring that somebody pays us back for those things. And again, it makes me, I'll just be frank, it makes me nauseated to see people who went through the iteration of, you know, getting their food storage and getting prepared. And then they've had a few spiritual experiences and now they're quote unquote woke. And they don't even have the humility necessary to go to the Lord and say, what lack I yet? They're literally sitting back, taking vacations still. And we're in the most critical time. The prophet has said that the most critical time in the history of mankind. And they're taking vacations for the purpose of vacation and they're you know they're going out and and spending money frivolously on 30 40,000 dollar toys and there's people in their ward in their congregation not just in their congregation or ward there's people that are their next door neighbor or down the street who don't know how they're going to pay their mortgage they don't like it doesn't equate like you can't say you're woke and consecrated and 
know that everything I have is not mine, but it's actually the Lord, and then not act that way. If you do, you're, hip, you're, 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 you're guilty of hypocrisy. There are a lot of brothers and sisters in the world right now who could use your help, who could use your resources. What did Christ say? I'm always amazed at who he said would inherit the kingdom of God. He's standing in front of the Sanhedrin. He's actually trying to teach people. And the Sanhedrin cronies, the clowns of the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, Sadducees, are following him around, pestering him. And they finally get him again to stop what he's doing and what he's teaching and turn and, and, and capitulate to the question they're asking him. These are men of means. These guys are wealthy, right? They're born into the aristocracy of their day or they learned their way into the aristocracy of their day. And they are, they are the wealthy elites governing the people and they're hammering Jesus and they're like, by what authority are you doing the things that you're doing? And he's like, eh, you want me to tell you what authority I do them by? You know, answer me this question. And he asked them a series of questions. You can go look it up. Okay. But the point is, is that when he's done with giving them a dissertation on their own silliness, he tells them something that's super pointed. He said, the harlots, right? Prostitutes, whores, right? Women who are having sex to earn a living to feed their children or, or feed themselves, right? Are, and the publicans are going to enter the kingdom of God before you do. Think about that for a second. The God of the universe just told religious men who had done all these things from their youth up, that they're not going to make it to the kingdom of heaven. But harlots, prostitutes, and publicans would. That, to me, is as pointed as it gets. Then he says, Verily, verily, I say unto you that it is easier, at one point he said this, for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to make it heaven. And I think I referenced this before. Don't give me the, I studied the uh, ancient Jewish ways and there was a gateway into Jerusalem that was known as the eye of the needle because the camel had to kneel down and scooch through it. No, like stop, just stop, okay? The Lord was making a point and I literally think he meant the eye of a needle, like a bone needle that they used to like sew things with back in the day. But either way, it's difficult because we hold on to the paradigms of this world and we hold on to the things of this world because they bring us security. But when the Lord brings down the entire financial institution of the world and of this country, everything that you have that is of worth is going to disappear overnight. And you're going to have to learn through tribulation to let go of those things. Or you could learn to be humble. You could remember to be humble now. Remember how to be humble because you've done it before. And you can ask the Lord, Lord, I have these extra things. What do I do with them? There are men and women 
of vast means that consider themselves woke but are sitting on these resources that could be used to bless people who are genuinely involved in the effort of the gathering of Israel. And if you've been blessed with means, then consider yourself a Martin Harris or an Artemis Millet. If you have means, you've been blessed with those things for what purpose? If you're genuinely honest and you look back, you probably earned them or got them with a tremendous amount of help from the Lord. In fact, I'm going to say not probably, you did. Because I've put in a lot of effort into building businesses and doing those kinds of things. And it hasn't fruited me. It hasn't, I haven't had the fruit of, of untold wealth and riches come to me yet. And I've been told why. Personally, and it doesn't matter. I'm not going to share with all of you why. But, but it wasn't my life plan to have that. And I've accepted that. But the kingdom can't be built right now in the current environment without resources and help. And you have an opportunity if you have means, and it doesn't matter how much your means is, if you've got a widow's might, fine. If you're sitting on millions, fine. Stop waiting though. Look at what you have that is extra and figure out how to leverage it and consecrate it to bless the lives of other people around you. And I hereby testify to you, brothers and sisters, and I commit and covenant with you that I will redouble my efforts in this regard, that I will see the blessings that I have more abundantly and more clearly, and that I will use and leverage those blessings to help other people. And that is Zion, to be of one heart and one mind, to learn to be a holy people by becoming acquainted with the character of God intimately acquainted with the character of God and then to completely eliminate poverty from among us. And I testify to you, brothers and sisters, that these things are true. And I say them in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. All right. So further podcasts. Um, I think I'm going to be going back into a season of podcasting here, but don't hold me to it. Cause obviously I said that last time. And then here we are 12 weeks later, it's snowing. I'm sitting on the side of the mountain and I'm just recording the second iteration of that podcast three. So, um, but I promised, I definitely feel very inspired to do a podcast on the King Follett discourse and get into some of the more nuts and bolts on that. Um, and, uh, and we'll see where it goes from there. But uh, brothers and sisters, I know that this work is of the Lord. I know that the Lord is going to ask you to do things that fly in the face of what tradition and culture has told you. And he may even tell you to break a current law in order to receive a higher law. That's what the Lord does. The pattern is there. We've discussed it. It's in the scriptures. So don't be surprised when he asks you to break a law that you thought was immovable. Because with him, all things are possible. And as long as he's not, as long as the voice that you're listening to isn't telling you to kill innocent people and deny the Holy Ghost, then you can almost guarantee that it's from God. So there you go. Take that for what it's worth. Take it to the Lord, but learn to hear his voice. Take it seriously because it's the only, 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 only way, the only way, the only way that you will learn to be holy and that I will learn to be holy as if we follow his word. 
All right, this is an hour and 40 minutes long. Brothers and sisters, I love you. We look, I look forward to talking to you again soon. And uh, until then, hurrah for Israel and God be with you until we meet again.